Welcome to Dear Dio, your resource for honest advice and real authenticity for your journey from life as a pre-med to residency. I'm your host, Michael Garrison. I'm a fourth-year medical student, incoming PGY1 neurology resident, and today we're going to be talking about the 2023 match, specifically the neurology match, my personal experience going through the process, things I wish I knew during the process itself, and how I feel being on the other side. So we're going to talk a lot about neurology today. But first, so this week we're going to be covering the neurology match, particularly in 2023. But first, I just wanted to talk about the main match for a second. So in the NRMP match across all specialties, there were 42,952 applicants who certified a rank order list and who were considered active applicants with only 40,375 certified positions available. This means that there were about 2,600 applicants who went unmatched who certified a rank list. USMD seniors had a 93.7% match rate compared to USDO seniors who had a 91.6% match rate. This is an all-time high for DO seniors and is an increase of 0.3% compared to last year. However, these numbers do not tell us how many people obtained their positions through the SOAP, so just take these numbers with a grain of salt as I continue. In neurology specifically, there were 146 programs who entered the match in 2023 with a total of 846 positions offered. There were 221 USDO seniors who applied for neurology and 148 of those USDO seniors matched into neurology. That statistic makes it look like only 67% of USDOs matched. However, we don't know how many of these people were dual applicants. Maybe they dual applied to something like anesthesiology and they matched anesthesia instead. USDOs ended up making up about 17.5% of the total filled neurology positions, um, whereas there were 636 MD seniors who applied for neurology and 461 of them matched into neurology, making MD seniors make up 54.5% of the total neurology positions. The rest of the percentage will be accounted for by both U.S. IMGs and non-U.S. IMGs. Only three neurology programs went unfilled in the 2023 match. This reflects the increasing competitiveness within the specialty. So let's go through a couple of things about the neurology residency application and the residency itself. So neurology is a four-year residency. It can either be categorical or advanced, and I've meant to go over categorical versus advanced for some time, so why not just dive right in right now? So let's talk about transitional year and preliminary year to get started and get our framework going. So there's transitional years and preliminary years, and if your program is a medicine specialty like neurology is, it will likely have an internal medicine preliminary or transitional year. If it is a surgical specialty, like say optho, it will likely have a surgery prelim or transitional year. When I say transitional year and when I say preliminary year, these are both kind of the same thing. A preliminary year and a transitional year are meant to take the place of intern year and give the resident a solid footing on a more broad kind of program like internal medicine or general surgery. There is some controversy about whether a preliminary year is technically more difficult or more challenging than a transitional year. 
But for me, I always thought of them as basically the same thing when I was, which we'll get to in a second. So for a categorical residency, the preliminary year or the transitional year is built into the program itself. So for neurology, this means instead of me applying to neurology residency and a separate prelim, those months of internal medicine are built into the residency program during my first year. I don't have to find anything separate. For neurology, the ACGME guidelines require every neurology resident to obtain at least eight months of internal medicine in their first year. So for most categorical residencies, that means between usually eight to 10 months of internal medicine, followed by neurology or psychiatry or child neurology, some kind of gateway into the world of neurology. You can probably guess that categorical residencies are liked a lot more by applicants because it means that they don't have to apply to a separate residency. They don't have to move across the country. They don't have to learn a new hospital. They don't have to meet new people. It's a one-stop shop for the residency program. And this was something that was really, really important to me and appealing to me because I did not want to have to move. I didn't want to have to do all those things that I just said. So for me, categorical was the way to go. I did mostly apply to categorical but I did apply to a couple of advanced, so we'll talk about advanced now. So for an advanced program, as you can probably guess, the advanced residency is the residency that you are applying for on your primary application, but it does not include the intern year. It's called advanced because they are technically accepting you in advance. The contract that you get from an advanced residency will be beginning an entire year later than if you were doing a categorical residency. So you are responsible for applying to preliminary years or transitional years to fulfill the either internal medicine or surgery requirement between graduation and the beginning of that advanced residency. When ranking a primary advanced residency on your rank list, during the season you will have interviewed hopefully at transitional years or preliminary years, and those programs will go on a supplemental rank order list attached to the advanced residency program that you have on your primary list. This means that it is impossible to only match into a transitional year or a preliminary year if it's not on your primary rank list. The algorithm is set up so that it goes through your primary rank list, and then if you happen to match on an advanced residency, then it moves over to your supplemental rank order list that you submitted attached to that residency itself. So it is technically possible to match into an advanced residency and not match into a prelim, but hopefully you would move on to obtain a prelim year through the SOAP. So back to neurology, most neurology residency programs have adopted the categorical residency system, probably because they, they see that it's more popular. It's a lot easier to keep their neurology residents kind of in-house and get them some exposure early on to neurology if they have them under one roof. And so I mostly applied to categorical programs for the reasons that I already talked about, but I did apply to, I think, one or two advanced programs, and I only had one on my rank list. And I did not interview for any prelims or any transitional years. They're very competitive um, because if you think about it, their transitional years and the prelim years, they have applicants coming from every specialty. So you have, you know, if there's an advanced plastic surgery residency, they need a gen surge prelim. If I'm also applying for that gen surge prelim, I'm sorry, but like 
I don't have the stats to probably compete with them. So they would probably choose the plastic surgery applicant over me. Anyway, so neurology is one of the specialties that participates in the supplemental ARIS application. Most specialties do this nowadays. So for neurology specifically, last year applicants got to pick three geographical regions, which spanned numerous states. They got to select rural versus urban on a spectrum and explain why they have that preference. And then they were given three tokens to programs that they were interested in. And that was really important. So last year was the first year that neurology participated in this supplemental application, along with a slew of other specialties. And although a lot of program directors didn't quite know what to do with the material that they were getting from the supplemental ARIS application, It did prove to be quite helpful for me and across the boards, like blog posts that I've that I've read about people analyzing the match and everything. It did prove to be beneficial to get people interviews. That's the main deal, right? Like, okay, I'm signaling I am super liking basically a a program telling them, hey, I'm super interested in you please give me an interview. That gets your foot in the door. The interview goes from there and then they rank you basically based on your interview. I received interviews at all of the three programs that I gave my tokens to, so it was very beneficial for me. I would highly recommend, you know, looking over the Supplemental ARIS application guide before you submit. It has a whole, I think like 20 page directions on how to use the Supplemental ARIS application. Should you be signaling or giving a token to a program that you also didn't audition at. Questions like that can be found in the Supplemental ARIS Application Guide, which is on the ARIS website. So according to the NRMP match data, the golden rule or the golden number of interviews for a neurology residency applicant is about 13. This means that in order to have a theoretical 99% chance of matching, an applicant needs 13 interviews and 13 programs on their rank list. This is a very subjective data, I feel like. I mean, it is objective, but it's subjective because quality in these interviews means a lot more than the quantity. And obviously, if you're not coming across in an unprofessional or inappropriate way, then you may need less than 13. So I wouldn't sweat it if you don't get to the golden number of 13 for neurology or whatever the golden number is for your specialty that you're applying to. I personally interviewed at 14 or 15 programs, but I only ended up ranking maybe 12 or 13. So I get this question a lot, how competitive is neurology? And it's increasing every year. And I think that that goes with a lot of other specialties, just as we have more and more medical students and as residency spots are expanding. They're not expanding to the same degree as medical school graduates. And so with the increase in competitiveness of neurology, I would expect that research is probably going to become more and more important as the years progress, just because it does so with all the other super competitive specialties. My personal journey was that I only had research from undergrad and my gap year, Um, I only had one actual publication and then I had three submissions. So that's not like stellar or anything like that. And my publication that I did have 
Um, it didn't actually get accepted into any journal. It was just a poster presentation. I mean, I shouldn't say just a poster presentation because I should be proud that that even happened, but I didn't get to present my own poster. So anyway, the reason why I am mentioning research is because osteopathic medical schools typically don't have the most robust research departments compared to our MD counterparts. There were opportunities for me to participate in research at my medical school. However, COVID-19 threw a huge wrench in those plans for me. So I made sure to mention that on my personal statement, why I was unable to fulfill any research while I was in medical school. This was the main gap on my residency application that I felt the most uncomfortable with. So if you are a student lacking research, I would say that it's definitely possible to match without it. And you should, or you can, totally address that lack of research in your, while in medical school, in your personal statement like I did, but make sure that you have a valid excuse and that you follow it up with how you look forward to doing research wherever you end up because it's something that you're legitimately passionate about. That being said, I think it should be a top priority to have at least one case report, poster presentation, something even small to put on your application. It can even be an online poster presentation under your belt while you're in medical school. Most residency programs require some type of research while you're a resident, whether it's a quality improvement project or a research project that you present at a big convention. So it's good to show them that you already have a solid footing in the research world and that you are capable of fulfilling their requirement. I'd also like to add that my research I did back in undergrad and back in my gap years had almost nothing to do with neurology. When I did research, I barely even knew what neurology was. I did my main project with the division of plastic surgery back when I thought that I wanted to be a surgeon. It was just happenstance that a lot of the concepts in that paper had a lot to do with facial recognition pathways and subjective beauty standards and lent themselves well to circling back to neurological pathways like visual processing and fear response, which I was able to tie in on my personal statement. And during my interviews, I was asked about this research pretty frequently. As for letters of recommendation to apply for neurology residency, I had two neurology letters, one neurosurgery letter, one family medicine letter, and one OBGYN letter. I kind I kind of had a grasp on which letters were my strongest letters, so I tried to keep that in mind when I was applying to more competitive programs. I only submitted one neurology letter on most of my applications. Most of them only require one, and I felt like one of my neurology letters was obviously more strong than the other one. Um, if I had to guess, not like I've seen them, but if I had to guess, I had a better connection with one of the physicians than the other, and that happens. When you're submitting to ARIS, you can actually select which letters you want to attach to which applications. So that was really important to me because, like I said, I submitted my stronger letters to more competitive programs, but programs that maybe I knew were in Florida and classically picked Florida students, I attached a letter of recommendation from the only physician in Florida that I worked with rather than all of my other letters, which were from Tennessee, where I did majority of my third year clerkships. Most programs have a maximum of four letters of recommendation per application, and this is a hack that I'm going to say right now, so please write this down. If you go on each residency's website and their requirements for the residency application, some will put that they only want 
two letters of recommendation or they only want three letters of recommendation, you should follow that. I had a whole spreadsheet. I made sure that I, if if Vanderbilt only asked for two letters of rec, I was only sending two letters of rec because they are strategically asking for only two letters of rec or only three letters of rec. One, probably because they get a high volume of applicants and they don't have time to read four letters. Let's be honest. Also, it forces the students to guess okay, which two letters are my strongest? Which are my most high yield letters that I feel speak the most about my character and might impress this residency committee? Even though you can submit four letters on that application, if their website is telling you they only want two or they only want three, please do not select four. Because if you put four on that application, they will only read two if they ask for two. They will only read three if they ask for three, and one of them will be lost. What if that was your most impressive one? Then you're screwed. I mean, you're not screwed, but like, then you're just out of luck. They'll never read it. They'll never know. Whereas like, if you knew that that was your strongest one, probably, and you just picked that one and the second one, because they only asked for two, you're just delivering them exactly what you want to show them, takes the guesswork out. I'm going to go through an entire episode on the heiress application and some tips that you need to know, hopefully going to clear the air on some rumors and some misinformation, but that's coming soon, um, especially before you guys hit submit in September. Um, Yeah, cool. So personal statement time. So for my personal statement, I followed the formula that I talked about in my previous episode. So if you haven't listened to the personal statement episode, I think it's episode five, go ahead and scroll down quite a ways as it was one of the first episodes. But Divine Intervention also did a great episode on how to write a residency personal statement. And this was the main formula that I used and I tweaked a bunch of it and I used other resources. And so I synthesized all of that material into episode five. So it's a very high yield episode and I talk very fast in it. I'm sorry. I was nervous. (laughs) Okay. So my personal statement was mostly about neurology, but my first paragraph was actually not about neurology at all. Surprisingly. Um, You can check out my Instagram, dear.do.pod to see my first paragraph. It is somewhere on my feed But throughout the entire interview season, I had positive feedback from program directors, associate program directors about my personal statement. So if you'd like any feedback on your personal statements before I start residency in July, please feel free to hit me up. I will give you my honest feedback, maybe just buy me coffee or something in return. So now for a few things about neurology as a specialty, I get asked all the time what fellowships are available through neurology. Do you do procedures? What's your patient population like? Um, Well, forgive me if this next part is a little listy, but it's informative, right? Like that's what we're here for. I'm obviously super passionate about neurology, not only because I love the brain, I love localization, I love the patient population that comes with neurology. I think that we have a very vulnerable patient population. Um, But I also just love that neurology is basically like a separate internal medicine is how I think about it. Um, One specialization within neurology, if you really follow that specialization all the way through, can be completely different than a than another path. And so in that way, it's very similar to like, okay, doing IM and specializing in cardio versus renal. So 
that's kind of where I'm coming from when I say that it's like a separate internal medicine. Like you, you get just just the tip of the iceberg in med school about neurology, and there's just so much more that they don't have the time to teach you, really. So there's so many options for fellowship through uh, through neurology. It's uncanny. The developments and research that's going on in neurology that's happening every day in the field really goes to show how little we actually know about the brain and the nervous system. And it makes me personally like very excited for the future of neurology. So that is why I chose neurology. That kind of almost sums up my personal statement a little bit in a nutshell. So um, let's talk about fellowships. Some of the more popular fellowships include epilepsy, movement disorders, neurophysiology, neurocritical care, cognitive neurology, stroke or vascular neurology, neuroimmunology, neuromuscular medicine, headache, and interventional radiology. But there's so many more, including things like sleep, pain, neuroptho, neurootology, autonomic disorders, and more. So this is just a very abbreviated list. To find out more, you can go on AAN's website, the American Academy of Neurology, and they have a whole list of all the different options for fellowship for neurology-trained residents. There's also just a classic neurohospitalist route, and this is the physician who is a neurologist who practices as a generalist in the hospital, doing rounds, maybe as a private practice in neurology, but they are generalist. So that means that they do everything in neurology. That's super appealing to a lot of people. We need more neurohospitalists, people who can treat everything in the hospital. But it's also good to know that you can do a fellowship in something like vascular neurology or neuroimmunology and end up practicing as a neurohospitalist. So that's kind of cool. Um, so let's go over each fellowship a little bit more, talk about their patient populations, if they do any procedures, everything like that. So both epilepsy and neurophysiology, I like to kind of talk about them together. Um, so epilepsy is just what it sounds like. It focuses on seizures, EEGs, seizure control, all of that. It goes very, very deep. They dive very deep into EEGs. Neurophysiology also takes a deep dive into EEGs, but they also do EMG training. So those are both kind of reading studies. You know, they're very niche studies. Not every doctor walking in the hospital can read an EEG. So it's very important that we have people who can read EEGs very, very well. Same thing for EMGs. So if you've ever heard of somebody having like carpal tunnel, those people have to go and get an EMG to make sure that they actually have carpal tunnel or to make sure that maybe it's not cubital tunnel instead. Um, so those EMGs are very good for localizing where weakness or where sensory deficits are coming from. And they're very, again, very niche kind of readings. Not every doctor walking down the street can say that they know how to read an EMG. So Moving on to neurocritical care. So this is a fellowship that's actually open to both neurology residents and internal medicine residents. Depending on the institution, some neuro ICUs are run strictly by neurology-trained neurointensivists, whereas some of them are more open to both internal medicine and neurology-trained. Um, this training has a lot of procedures. They do line placements, intubations, tracheostomies, and it really combines both facets of internal medicine and neurology. So in, in addition to, you know, 
caring for the neurological condition of the patient, you're also responsible for the vent settings, for reading the ABGs, for reading all of their labs. What's their kidney function? It's it's just a it's a very intense, very IM and neuro synergistic kind of fellowship from what I've gathered. Um, remember that I'm not an expert on any of this, guys. So um, cognitive neurology is all about memory and thought processing. So this has a lot to do with Alzheimer's and dementia patients. You can imagine that those patients are probably going to be elderly. If you enjoy working with elderly patients, if you enjoy working with people who have memory problems and caring for them and working with family members, that might be a good option for you. Um, Neuroimmunology is mainly what people think of when they think of multiple sclerosis, but it also includes things like myasthenia gravis, Guillain-Barre, neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, autoimmune epilepsy, autoimmune encephalitis, and is the field that I'm currently the most interested in as it's had a lot of advancements in the past few years. I think every day a new monoclonal antibody comes out, but figuring out perineoplastic syndromes and how autoimmune antibodies can can affect basically our entire CNS. This is where I'm going to send you. And if you are interested in neurology at all, please read the book, Brain on Fire by Savannah Kahalen. It is a true life biography, like an autobiography memoir kind of thing about her personal journey through an autoimmune encephalitis event that nearly took her life and was one of the first diagnosed conditions like hers ever that they've figured out. But I really like neuroimmunology. I think that the field is growing a lot and that we're discovering a lot every day. So there's not a ton of procedures for neuroimmunology, but I think that the patient population is generally a little bit younger. Um, You can really work with people as they are getting their first diagnosis, you know, in their 20s and then working with them long term to make sure that, you know, we're controlling flares. We are making them have like the best quality of life that they can. So it's very much like long term management. Movement Disorders Fellowship uh, takes a deeper dive into pathologies, pathologies like Parkinson's, but it can also be useful for any neurological condition that causes either increased or reduced movement. Movement disorder physicians, um, they get to do a lot of Botox on muscles for spasticity. Uh, That's a kind of a newer indication for Botox, but remember Botox is a toxin and it causes muscle relaxation. So if you have somebody who's kind of spastic and they are contracted, we can inject Botox into their contracted muscles to hopefully loose them up so that they can better benefit from physical therapy, stretching, and make it so that they don't have painful contractions because that is horrible. Um, Sleep and headache medicine are pretty self-explanatory, but they are just as important. And honestly, they're super cool specialties. Headache is one of the things that I'm always trying to get better at because it's such a subjective complaint. Um, There's so many different things that it can be depending on how the patient is describing it. it, can lead you down different kind of routes of the algorithm. And I'm also really interested in sleep. After I read the book, Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker, So I've requested that as one of my electives, and we will see what happens next year. I keep saying next year, but it's July, um, so it's coming up. And then interventional radiology, neurointerventional or interventional neuroradiology is a fellowship option available to neurosurgery residents as well as neurology residents. There are only a few fellowships that take neurology residents traditionally. 
So this is probably the most competitive fellowship out there for neurology residents. It's also a two-year fellowship, I believe. It's longer than all of the other ones, granted, because you are doing surgery. So these are the doctors who practice surgery by doing thrombectomies in cases of strokes. They do coilings for arteriovenous malformations. They do pipelines for aneurysms. It's pretty amazing. And I thought about it for a minute, but, you know, I don't think that I'm cut out for the surgery lifestyle like I've talked about before. But these people are amazing and I have so much envy for what they do. It's also possible to do a neuropsychiatry combined residency. There aren't many programs, but it is a five-year residency It's pretty competitive and pretty research heavy from what I've gathered, but I'm definitely not the neuropsych expert. I thought about this for a second. It's also extremely competitive for DO applicants, unfortunately, probably because it is so research heavy, but we move. So like I kind of alluded to, the patient population for neurology is anywhere from young adult to elderly. There's a completely separate child neurology residency for childhood neurological disorders, But as adult neurologists, we are required to know about childhood conditions, especially as that patient ages. And so there's often a child neurology block built into every neurology residency. Um, I'm pretty sure it's an ACGME guideline. So the interview process for neurology is pretty straightforward. Basically, as soon as you hit submit on ARIS in September, you will receive interview invitations. For me, as soon as the next day, I received my first interview invitation, but the interviews themselves were held between October and January. This is a really long window, and I tried to put as many interviews as I could at the later half of the interview season. This was so that I could really focus on not missing any days during my audition rotations, which were September through November. I would also recommend doing your first interview or maybe first two interviews as ones that maybe you don't care about as much. Not that I didn't care about any of the programs that I interviewed at. I just put the ones that I knew I was going to rank very highly at the middle or the end so that I could have a couple of interviews under my belt and make it so that I really understand what interviews felt like what kinds of questions they were asking. Interviewing is just really an art and it takes a lot of practice. So just food for thought. That being said, like I mentioned before, I had 15 interviews and by the end I felt pretty burnt out. It can be tough because a lot of programs do a ton of interviews in October and January because of the holidays in November and December. I would also recommend keeping these interview dates on a spreadsheet so that you don't double book. Some interviews might be 30 minutes or an hour. Some interviews might take your entire day. Um, Neurology programs use a bunch of different websites for interviews. I had to schedule through Thalamus, Interview Broker, as well as ARIS itself. And then I had my actual interviews on Zoom, on Thalamus, on WebEx, on Teams from Microsoft, just You got to stay organized during this process, guys. I'll make an entire episode on how I mastered interviewing, or at least how I think and hope that I did. Um, Things that you should buy for the interviews, things that maybe you could do without, how to navigate different websites being used, and some tips and tricks. So stay tuned for that. My personal interview trail consisted mostly of me talking about my hobbies, and my plans for the future of neurology. I did I did have one interviewee question. They asked why I chose a DO school or if it was the only place that I got in, 
which I was very much kind of like caught off guard by and didn't really like understand their question right away because I didn't understand why they would ask such a kind of mean question. But this served as a personal red flag check for that program for me. Um, This is also the reason why it's so important to keep a running journal throughout your interviews to write down how you interacted with staff and the residents. Other than that one bad experience, I had incredible conversations and interviews with some amazing programs, and I would have been honored to attend all of them. So many nice program directors and faculty I came across, and in the world of neurology, it's pretty small, pretty niche still, so odds are I'll run into some of them in the future. And spoiler alert, I might even have one of them on the podcast in May, so that was spoiler alert, but it'll be worth it. So, As far as things that I would have changed on my journey through fourth year and in terms of match, I probably would have not gotten an apartment. I think I stayed in my own apartment maybe for two months total throughout the entire year. Uh, Fourth year is super expensive between audition rotations, travel costs, heiress applications themselves totaled up to about $2,000. So paying $900 a month, given that I was splitting it with someone else for a place that I wasn't even staying in was kind of a waste for me personally. So maybe I wouldn't have done that, but maybe I would have. I don't know. We can't go back. So I would have also liked to have saved the last two weeks of my vacation for the very end. This past week or two weeks, I've been working 40 hours a week or more, night shift and day shift, while I'm trying to plan for residency complete onboarding and everything, and it's gotten a bit hectic. So like I've talked about before, I needed to use my first two weeks to move and take step two, level two. And then I used my other two weeks in Christmas and New Year's because I didn't know if I would ever have a New Year's or a Christmas off again. So that's why I used them then. So I don't know if I would have changed that, but right now I'm definitely kicking myself. So it's something to think about. And all of my friends are in Aruba in St. Lucia, and I'm sitting here in Kingsport, Tennessee, and got to go to my EM rotation in a couple minutes. So lastly, most importantly, I would spend less time on Discord. So the Discord is a great resource for applicants to connect with one another, to ask questions, all of the good thing. I think that I had really good intentions. But at the same time, the Discord can be a super toxic place in terms of comparison and feelings of inadequacy. And if you are listening to this right now, I want you to please be kind to your fellow applicants on the Discord, on the Google Sheets. This is a super high stress environment, guys. And it's very easy to feel like you're either not worthy or you're not as good as maybe some of the other people that you see on these apps, posting their stats, their research, what med schools they go to. It's easy to feel inadequate, but it's important to maintain your own grace, your own sense of self um, and self-worth because this process is so stressful on its own without those comparisons. So do yourself a favor and stay in your lane. Focus on your goal. We don't need to worry about anyone else and their stats on Discord. That's not going to help you. You have your stats. There's nothing that you can change about them. It's also good to be aware of your quote-unquote competition per se, but I hate calling that. They're not your competition, okay? Every applicant is completely unique based on their life experience, based on their personal journey, and reducing your fellow applicants down to their stats does them a disservice, and then it also does you a disservice. You are a whole, fully formed, graduating medical student, rising resident physician with your own motivators, your own successes, your own failures. 
What you bring to the table is unique, no matter what anyone says. And these applicants are not your competition. These applicants are your future co-residents. They are your future team members. So please just be kind. Everyone here is going through a lot. For me, it feels pretty surreal being on the other side of the match. And I'm not really sure if I can even put it into words what I think. But I think that this moment that I'm in is kind of what every med student is aspiring and is reaching for. As high schoolers wanting to pursue medicine, we weren't really hoping to be medical school students forever. We were hoping to become doctors, to become resident physicians, to help patients and be part of a care team. I'm super grateful I made it through. I'm very excited for what the future holds. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. The best way to grow and help our community of future physicians is through the word of mouth. So send this to your your med school bestie across the country. Send this on your Instagram story. And you can tell me what you thought of this episode, what you want to hear on the pod next week. If you know someone who wants to be featured on the podcast, send them my way. I'm totally open. Some exciting episodes are coming up that I alluded to earlier. We have an interview with a neurology program director coming in May, an episode about finance and home buying, how to stay motivated in med school. So stay tuned for all of that and more. And as always, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at dear.do.pod. You can also visit my website, deardeopod.com, for blog posts, guides, and you can anonymously ask all of your med school questions. Original music by Cologne, recording and production by yours truly, and I hope to see you here next time.